At the risk of being bold, I want to tell you at the outset, you are really lucky. This is an amazing shear. <laughs> so now let's see if I can back that up. So this is part two of our uh, shear on uh, Midos uh, and Mitzvos of Benadam L'Chavero. We spoke uh, last week about the importance of actually doing for others acts of chesed. And what I'd like to speak about today is the topic of empathy, uh, which is known in the language of the Mishnah, as we shall see momentarily, no se ba'ol im chavero. And specifically, what I'd like to talk about, and uh, I hope demonstrate by the end of this year, is that part, not entirely, but part of what makes this such an important and critical midah is not only what we do for others with our empathy, but also what we ultimately learn about and do for ourselves. And in that way, it is uh, going to be parallel to what our thesis was last week in what I call the chesed boomerang. So the, the term for empathy, as I mentioned before, in the rabbinic Hebrew, comes from source number one, which is a, a text from the end of Perki uh, Avos, the sixth parak. Uh, for those of you who care about these things, Avos is really, really, really only five chapters, five prakim, but at some point uh, in the time of the Geonim, we think, uh, they added a sixth chapter, which is technically not a Mishnah, but really a Brisa, which is all about the theme of Torah. The sixth chapter is, of us is all about Torah. And for those who have the Minog, this becomes the chapter that people typically study in the week before Shavuos. That's why they added it on, so you have the six weeks after Pesach to get to Shavuos. So one of the very famous uh, rabbinic sayings in that last chapter in Perkei Avos is that Torah can be acquired with Arba Umemcha, excuse me, Arbaim uh, Ushmona, or Memchas, 48 Kinyanim. There are 48 attributes that a person needs to have to truly be able to master Torah. And many of the things on the list are the things you would expect. You know, diligence as a student, alacrity, being dedicated to your teacher, asking questions, all those kind of things you'd expect. Someone's giving you advice for how to be successful in some academic pursuit, in this case, Torah. However, what is uh, striking is many, many of the examples on the list don't seem to have anything to do with academics. And a good example of that is, as you see there in source number one, one of the things that is listed among the 48 categories or attributes you need in order to fully master Torah, where it's underlined, source number one, no se ba'ol, so that literally means to carry the burden with your friend. Now, what that itself might be conveying and why that very kind of clunky four-word phrase is needed to just say the word empathy, I have a theory which I want to explain a little bit later in the shear. But this is the earliest source that we have that explicitly speaks in this term, and this is the term that gets used uh, for the rest of uh, you know, the Torah literature, of what we, you and I would call empathy, no se ba'ol im chavero. Just as an interesting parenthetical point, um, there are different theories as to why that should have anything to do with becoming a Tamil Chacham, being successful in learning, right? Uh, unfortunately, sometimes we even see people who could be the best students in the class. They don't have much empathy whatsoever. Um, so why would the Mishnah say that ultimately one really needs empathy? What does that have to do with learning? So there's a lot of different answers, but I'll just mention one which is one, one of my favorites, is the Maharal of Prague. Maharal says that the Torah was not given to you, it wasn't given to me, it wasn't given to any individual, it wasn't given to Rechaim Kanievsky, it wasn't given to anybody. The Torah was given to the Jewish people as a nation. And the only way you could have the right to Torah is if you are fully connected with and identify with the nation. And therefore, 
many of the, many, not all, but many of the different more Benam Lechavero type attributes which are on this list, Maral explains consistently in that way. That a person needs not just to be a good student and ask questions and find a good teacher and all those things you would expect, but a person also has to be totally identified with the Jewish people. Your full identity, your full commitment has to be connected to the Jewish people, or else it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, it doesn't matter how much you study, if you can't totally relate to the entirety of the Jewish people as an Am, a nation, as an Am, qua Am, then you simply have no right to the Torah, because the Torah wasn't given to you. It wasn't given to this smart student or that smart student, it was given to the, the Jewish people. Okay? That's just a freebie, got nothing to do with the rest of this year, but enjoy it. Okay. So now, I was quickly editing the source sheet and I realized I made a mistake after I printed it. So we are going to skip from source number one to source number three. You see how we do that? It's magic. Um, we are flying today. That was number two. Yeah, exactly. There you go. That actually really was. I just mistakenly took it out. Anyway, so what I want to start off with um, is something which I think is striking. It's not, I'm not the first person who had the observation, but it really does catch my attention and I think it will yours as well. And that is that one of the ways in which we see how much emphasis... Chazal put on the attribute of empathy and Nosel Chavero is the fact that in many sources that relate to what you and I might call nowadays leadership, there seems to be a recurring mention of this attribute. And specifically, specifically for our greatest leader, the origin story of Moshe Rabbeinu is suffused from beginning to end with the notion of empathy. So for example, this is really mind-blowing. It's good you're all sitting, because otherwise you'd just jump out of your seat. One of my favorite of all time. Says the Torah in source number three. Very well-known pasuk, very, very difficult pasuk, if you think about it. Baby Moshe has been hidden as long as he can. His family knows the time is up. They're going to get caught. They cast him down the river. Right? However, we know eventually... Basparo sees him. And that's the famous Pasuk source number three. Basparo notices this little baby floating down the river while she's there with her attendants. And he's crying. She had mercy on him. And she said, This must be a Jewish baby. Now you can read that Pasuk a hundred times and it makes perfect sense on its face. Perfectly fits into the story. I even checked with the prince of Egypt. This is exactly what happened. Um, so it's all fine and good. However, there are two uh, questions that one could ask if we have a more careful and closer reading of the text. The first one is the most famous one, which is the fact that within a few short words, in one phrase, the Torah switches words in describing baby Moshe. The Now that really means like a little boy, a baby. She saw the baby. But in the very next phrase, the Torah says, "Vehine naar bocha." Naar doesn't mean a baby. A naar means like an adolescent, an older, more mature person. So she saw the baby, and the adolescent cried. So first of all, which one was he? Why are we switching? And he re- what's going on? Right? Very, very problematic choice of words. A second point I'll, I'll ask is, how did she know this was a Jewish baby? But Tomer miyal de ivrimzeh. Now, again, I think there's an easy answer to the question, which is, who else would put a baby in a basket and send him down the river? Okay, I'm, I'm not, I don't deny that. But still, it's an interesting observation, right? You know, uh, and Chazal and other people try to come up with opinions. Some say she looked and she saw I had a bris milah. You know, it's not obvious, you know. So, 
Anyway, there could be different answers to this question, a lot of beautiful answers, but let me share with you the most incredible answer you'll ever hear. This comes from the Baal HaTurim, source number four. Baal HaTurim is one of the Rishonim, and actually a famous, most famous for his work in Halacha, but he also has a very important commentary on the Chumash. And interestingly enough, he must have done five yichidot in math, uh, because he's very, very mathematical. He's the genius of gematrias. We often think of gematrias as being more of like a Hasidic thing. In, in modern era, it became more of a Hasidic, Kabbalistic, mystical thing. But the Torah lived way before Hasidim and, uh, and all that stuff. And he was a math genius. And he's constantly finding mathematical uh, clues uh, and codes embedded in the Torah text. And this is an example of where, even if you're not mathematical, raise your hand. Not mathematical, that would be me and the Gottliebs. We support many tutors over the, over for many years. Um, dentists and tutors make their living off of the Gottliebs. Anyway, so um, here it's not just a mathematical uh, formula that he notices or code, but it has, I think, profound significance. Look what he says, source number four. So he's commenting on the words of Hine Na'ar Bocha. This older adolescent child is crying. Says the Balaturim. Who is the Na'ar that's crying? Ze'aron. It wasn't baby Moshe that she heard. It's Aaron who's crying. Now where's Aaron? What do you have to do with the story? He's not anywhere in the text. Says the Balaturim, He was standing watching. Now we know, we've always brought up, we always taught, it said, tells us, right? Who was watching? Yeah. Miriam. I don't think he's denying that. But he, what do you think, only, only the sister cared? He says Aaron went too. And it was Aaron who was crying. Now, how does he know that? So he points out, Na'ar Boche, the words Na'ar Boche, add up in the numerical value, Bukamatria, Ze'aron HaKohen. If you gave me a million years and a million dollars, I couldn't have figured that out. I wouldn't even begin, I wouldn't have thought of it. Okay? And for the record, please no one check out the math now. I don't want to find out if it's wrong. Okay? It's too good to verify. Okay, now, let's, now that we've got the little cutesy math thing going, let's take a step back and what is he really saying that's so profound? And let's reread the Pasuk in light of this. Vatiftach, yeled. All of a sudden, Bas Paro sees the yeled. Who's the yeled? He's baby Moshe. Perfect. And then what happens? Vahine na'ar bocha. She recognizes and hears that. Aaron, the older brother who's standing on the banks, he's crying out of concern for his brother. And then she says, her heart is moved by what? By the tears of Aaron. And she says, How does she know it's a Jewish child? Because a Jew has empathy. To cry for yourself is one thing. But to be sitting there watching, says Basparo, if there could be a brother who's sitting keeping watch, a brother who's crying, that's, thus is a Yiddish kinder. That's a Jewish child. So right from the beginning, before Moshe has done anything, right now he's still an object, but already from the earliest parts of his story, according to the Baraturim at least, empathy is embedded. But without being so esoteric or uh, you know, n- uh, neat in the math, really it's a Pasuk and Chumash, and Rashi, and it's incredibly powerful, and we have to really appreciate what it's saying. Source number five and six. The Torah tells us this is the very first thing that we hear about Moshe as an active subject, not someone who's being acted upon, 
not an object, but someone who's actually an agent with agency who's doing things for himself. Right? There's no more frequently referenced central figure in the entire Torah as Moshe. And of all the, I don't even know how many hundreds or thousands of references to Moshe in the Torah, the very first in which Moshe is doing something is source number five. Moshe grows up, he's right in the palace. He goes out to his brothers. Now it's a big mystery how he even knew who his brothers were. Evidently he knew he's Jewish. And he goes out to the pyramid and the slave pits and he sees the Jews working as slaves to Paro. He sees their suffering and then specifically the Torah continues, he sees the Egyptian taskmaster beating a Jewish slave. What does it mean that he saw their suffering? Says Rashi, amazingly, Noson Einav Valibo, source number six, Leos Metzar Aleihem. He saw and he gave his heart. He empathized with them. And this is so important because there are really two different things, according to Rashi, that the Torah is telling us about Moshe. First of all, he saw. We walk through life and there are things that go right in front of us which we don't even notice. Right? It's the scariest and frankly the most depressing thing sometimes when all of a sudden you hear about this, you know, some family that's suffering or someone's sick, you know, somebody down the block. I didn't even know. Well, why didn't you know? Sometimes people are hyper, hyper private, but sometimes if you had just opened your eyes, you might have noticed. So, you know, let alone you could be walking in downtown in any big city. Uh, certainly in the United States at this point, unfortunately. But I, unfortunately, sometimes you even see this in Israel. Right? We see homeless people, all sorts of things. People suffering, people poor, people with mental health issues. You just walk right by them. Right? So first of all, Moshe was nasan enough. His eyes were open. <coughs> but it's not enough just to have your eyes open. Because sometimes we see, we even may give a dollar, and a minute later we don't even remember we did it, let alone that we saw the person. He wasn't just nasan enough, but libo. His heart. Yeah, the first step is just to see. Most of the time we don't even see. We avert our eyes. But he didn't just see. He gave over his heart. So, again, it's a striking thing. The very first act we are told about Moshe Rabbeinu was his empathy. He understood, he saw, and he felt libo, lios meitzalem, he felt the pain of others. The Medrash embellishes on this in source number 7, but I want to save that. I want to come back to that Medrash in a little bit. Fast forward, a second component, a second aspect of Moshe's career, the next big thing. He's already had to run away. He already killed the Egyptian policeman. He's in Midian. He is a shepherd for his father-in-law. And then what happens? Source number 8, all of a sudden, Moshe is in the desert. He's just minding his own business as a shepherd. All of a sudden, the voice of God, an angel, is talking to him through the burning bush. A sne. What is a sne? Says Rashi, the end there in the brackets of source number eight. Rashi says, a sne is a thorn bush, a kind of prickly, painful bush. It says Rashi, it's not a coincidence. Vlo ilan acher. Now, you might say, well, what else grows in a desert? Okay, but the truth is sometimes there could be other types of uh, things growing in the desert. But says Rashi, anyway, it's not a coincidence. It has nothing to do with temperature and topography and water uh, output. Says Rashi, lo inyan acher. Why? Mishum imo 
Anochi Batsara. God chose to speak to Moshe from a thorn bush to communicate, as it were, obviously this is anthropomorphic, that Hashem was feeling the pain of the Jewish people. This is based on a medrash in source number nine, which is more elaborate. Let's see that together. Source number nine. God says to Moshe here at the burning bush, Don't you realize that I, God, too, have empathy? I can feel their pain. You should realize, says God, Hashem picks the thorn bush deliberately to convey this anthropomorphic point that if you are going to be a leader of the Jewish people, you need to be able to feel their pain. The time has come, says HaKadosh Baruch because now I didn't just Nasan Einav, if we can kind of borrow from the first Rashi and interpolate that into the second one. God is basically saying, I didn't just see the Jewish people's pain, I can now feel it. And again, we see yet another example, our third, that every part of the Moshe story is suffused with this midah of empathy. I'll give you one more, and then we'll move on. Source number 10. So all of a sudden, Moshe sees the burning bush, and he approaches, Right? A few psukim later, source number 10. And he's about to get too close. And all of a sudden he hears a voice. Yomer, don't come too close. Stop. Don't move. Take your shoes off. Because where you're standing, it's holy ground. Now, what do you, first of all, why do you have to take off your shoes? When I was a kid, I was not told to take off my shoes whenever I got the shul. Totally, you're in shul now, take off your shoes. But secondly, more importantly, what does it mean that it's Admas Kodesh? It's a desert in Midian. It's not Kodesh. This is not one of those madrashim that really, really Moshe was on Harabayis or Haramoriah. He's in a desert. He's not, what does that mean, Admas Kodesh? So again, I think the simplest understanding would be, well, if, if all of a sudden you're having a prophetic experience, so that makes it a holy place. Fair enough. But says the Chedusha Harim, that's the founding uh, Ger Rebbe, he says something much, much more profound, much more powerful. He says, this is not on your sheet. He says, what was really going on is as follows. Moshe is about to be appointed the leader of the Jewish people, not just the leader of the Jewish people, the liberator of the Jewish people. Now, it is easily understood and stands to reason that when Moshe will show up to the Jewish people, first they're going to say, who are you? And second of all, why in the world should we follow you? In what way are you in any way the appropriate candidate to be our leader, to be our liberator? Do you know what we've been doing for the last 200 plus years? Suffering, servitude, backbreaking labor. And what have you done? Nothing except for silk slippers in the palace of Paro. How can you possibly relate to us? So says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, before you go down there, Shal Nalecha Miyaraglecha, take your shoes off, at least momentarily, feel the pain of the hot desert sand on your bare feet. Get a sense, a bit, a taste, a tipa, a schmeck of what the Jewish people suffering has been like. Because this is Admas Kodesh, this is hallowed ground hallowed and sanctified by the suffering of your brothers. You want to be the leader of this people? 
you need to be able to feel their pain. You need to be able to have some sense of the suffering that they've been going through. So from the time Moshe is a little baby in the water, to the time that Moshe grows up in the palace, to the time he's in Midian, Moshe is being inculcated and in demonstrating this midah of empathy. The altar of Kelm liked to point out that it wasn't just Moshe. He says, but we have examples of this. I didn't put it on your sheet at all. But in the Mordechai and Esther story, why was Mordechai chosen? What was Mordechai's role? And he speaks about that fact as well. The fact that Mordechai had such empathy, not only for his fellow Jews, but for Esther herself. He didn't leave the palace. He was constantly going to Ahasuerus' palace to see she was doing. Says the altar of Kelm, he has a very long uh, essay on this. I couldn't figure out what little part to put on the sheet. But he has a whole, whole essay on this, multiple pages, where he points out from some of the sources I mentioned, some others, um, some of the ones that I mentioned he didn't mention, but he makes this point that the quintessential, the most absolutely necessary ingredient to be a Jewish leader it's not brilliance, it's not charisma, it's not how long the Shemona Esrei is, it's none of that stuff. It's all nice and good. But the first and most important critical point is empathy. No say ba'ol imchavero. And if on the most extreme and dramatic and high level, that is the prerequisite to be a great Jewish leader, so then presumably each of us on our own level can understand why that is absolutely such a critical, critical mida for us to inculcate as well. And I'd like... And, Internalize, I guess you could say, uh, as well. And I want to share with you now, for the uh, remain, big part of the remainder of the year, the second part of the year, I want to share with you suggestions of three different reasons. I don't think it's obvious. Again, not, not any of these are going to be uh, you know, mind-blowing chidushim, but I think instead of just thinking of it in some blah, um, imprecise way, oh yeah, empathy is important, and I saw a few sources about Moshe Rabbeinu, it's important. But I'd like to break it down, I think, into three specific uh, areas in which I think if one could really genuinely uh, feel this, feel the pain of others, truly connect to the suffering and the challenges of other people, uh, why I think, why I think uh, it is so important. And the simplest, I think, reason, the simplest reason is because if one truly can identify with the pain and the suffering of other people, if one truly feels the pain of others, that is incredible catalyst to do much more than you would have done otherwise. Right? How come, again, I'm not discussing now some people can give a bigger check or a smaller check, right? and why some people do and don't. So sometimes it's just because what people give what they can afford, and sometimes, you know, a cause moves them or whatever. But a lot of times, people, it's not about money, it could be about time, and people could have the same amount of time or the same amount of money, but how come some people are willing to do more. Again, there's always these, you know, tzaddikim and tzidkaniosos in every neighborhood who are constantly doing for other people and behind the scenes and they're just the chesed people, right? How, and how come other people are basically nice people? I don't mean, I'm not talking about like there's that grumpy, chromogeny person. That's a different parsha. So, but there are also nice people. And yet some nice people do a normal amount of chesed and then there's those people who are above and beyond. Where does that come from? So I think it comes from empathy. It's one thing if you're sympathetic. Sympathetic still keeps a little bit of an arm's length distance. It's so sad that they have this problem. Right? But empathy means, on some level, I have this problem. Because I'm in pain. Because they're in pain. And that can make all the difference. If you go back to source number seven, after years and years of being aware of the Rashi on Chumash, only more recently was I aware... Uh, that if you go back to the original source, and it's a good Muslim, you should always do that, uh, of 
when it comes to Moshe Rabbeinu in the Medrash, when it says that Moshe, you know, felt the pain of his fellow Jews uh, when he went out to the, uh, to the pyramids, into the slave pits. So if you take a look at source number seven, the Medrash actually has two different, so to speak, formulations of this. The first is just the more general. Yes, he saw their pain, he felt their pain, that's the part that Rashi quotes. However, the Medrash in source number seven, if you see where it's underlined, the Medrash actually has a whole other version, which if you just learn Chomish Rashi, you never know about. Says the Medrash, Moshe didn't just go down to the slave pit, see the Jews suffering, and feel bad. Rather, where it's underlined, number seven, Hainosen Ketefav, Moshe went down into the pyramids and put his shoulder into it. He bent down his shoulder and said, oh, you're carrying, you're schlepping these huge bricks. Let me help you. Moshe didn't just from afar, he wasn't a limousine liberal. He wasn't just from afar saying, oh, I feel bad. He actually went to the soup kitchen. He actually went to the homeless shelter. He actually was getting his hands dirty. And more amazingly, the Medrash continues. At some point, the Egyptian taskmasters are seeing Moshe. He's actually down there with the bad guys, with the slaves. What are you doing? You're the prince of Egypt. So he was quick on his feet. We already see some of Moshe's brilliance. He says as follows. The Medrash says in the second part where it's underlined. He did it. He explained to them, no, no, no. It's not that I'm doing it because I care about these people. He came up with a whole elaborate lie to trick the Egyptian taskmasters. I'm just doing this to help. I want them to be more efficient. I want them to be able to build faster, build better. So I'm helping. I'm doing it not for the people or I care about these slaves. I'm doing it for my father. I'm doing it for Paro. So why does a prince risk everything? He gets down and dirty. He goes into the slave pits. He goes into the pyramids. He's literally doing backbreaking work with the slaves, he's lying to the police officers, to the taskmasters, risking everything. I think it only happens if you are Nasa and Enav, Valibo. Again, it was the easiest thing in the world for him never even to know. He had just lived his gilded life in the palace, his blessed life in the palace. So first he saw, he heard, he knew. But then he went down and he truly, truly felt the pain. And when you feel the pain, you don't just, you know... Go back out, you know, come home and over dinner maybe, you know, say, uh, you know, Dad, you know, maybe you could lighten up on the Jews, you know, they're really suffering. Right? That would be something. That would have been a Milo. But he did way more than that. He put his body at risk and he put everything at risk, even with his life. And says the Medrash at the end there, that was the key. Amar Kodesh Baruch Hu, Atahi nachta iskachav, alachta liros, b'tzaren shal Yisrael, It only recently jumped out at me. The Medrash is saying the same two things that we see condensed in Rashi. But it's not just Nasan Ein of Velibo, it's Liros, he saw, and then what happened? Nahagta, he did. It's one thing to see, it's one thing to feel. If you f- truly feel, you'll also do. Says the Medrash, because of that, you were, min, you were uh, Nohag, Minhag Achim, you treated these your, your, as your brothers, you felt their pain. Says Hashem, if you could leave your comfort to get into the pain of the Jewish people, Kash Baruch says, you triggered me. I do the same thing. I feel the same way. The Geula will begin. You will be the harbinger of it. So I think that's point number one. We'll do, all of us have a certain baseline instinct towards chesed. Some of us a little bit more, some of us a little less. But everyone has something. But wherever our baseline is, if we can get to the point of truly identifying and feeling the pain of whatever cause that we're being asked to help with, it will multiply wherever we were. So yeah, it's true, some people are naturally a three and some people are naturally a five. But if you have empathy, the natural three will become a 30. And the natural five will become a 50. 
Years ago, I heard an incredible story, which I think is a very powerful illustration of this. There was a, a Hasidic couple who had had uh, difficulty having children for many, many years. And they went to fertility specialists, and eventually they were blessed, Baruch Hashem, with twins. But it could be overwhelming, uh, to say the least. Um, I have a, my sister, my younger sister has uh, twins, and um, it's overwhelming. Uh, a double blessing, but a double amount of work, that's for sure. And um, at some point, I think it must have been the summer months, her husband very lovingly said, listen, you know, you're fashmated. It's been months, you're like, I submit. There's one of these kosher hotels up in the Catskills. Let's go away for a long weekend. You'll be able to relax. It's beautiful, Baruch Hashem. And all of a sudden, he sees over Shabbos, the smile returns, the life returns. She's a different woman. All of a sudden, so he's so moved by this. They're supposed to just go for Shabbos. He says, you know what? I have to go back to the city for work. Stay for the week. Stay for the week. It's my gift to you. Stay for the week. Enjoy. It's unbelievable. So she's there with the twins. She's enjoying. Comes someday in the middle of the week. She's at the lunch buffet. Of course, it's got to be a buffet. And uh, she has twins though. It's not so posh. You know, one's in, the, one's in the carriage and one's in the car seat. And she's, so she goes, finds a table. She puts them down. And then she quickly runs to the buffet table to get her food to bring back for the kids. When she gets there, one of the babies is not there. Somehow it's crawled out of the car seat or whatever it is. So how far could the little baby go? He looks under the table, looks around. I can only imagine it was somewhere between, I don't know, three and five seconds when she had that feeling. Any of us who ever been in an amusement park and couldn't find our child for five seconds you know that feeling. There is no worse feeling in the world. And she's petrified. So she's, now she's looking more frantically. And frankly, now it's 15, 20, 30 seconds, which might have felt like a lifetime. And she starts screaming. Who? And of course, everyone, you know, first have to put down the colopchus, you know, and the third dessert, which they already got in case it would run out before the people were eating the main. You know how it is, Jews in a buffet. Wow. Dangerous place to be. Not in between them and the table of food. Right? But... Eventually, people can even pull themselves away from the third main and their fourth dessert. And people start looking around under the table, and there's no baby. Now we're talking, it's already been a while, and the, the frantic. So the, uh, around this time, the, uh, you know, when, whenever you're one of these hotel programs, they have uh, groups for the kids and all sorts of you know, teen programs. Anyway, there's counselors. So the counselors now are deployed, and the counselors are starting going now... Can't imagine this baby could have gotten out of the dining room, but okay, evidently there's no baby in the dining room. So they start going to look around different rooms. And the, call the police who's coming, and this woman, I can imagine, it's just beyond, beyond, beyond frantic. Beyond frantic. And the counselors come back a few minutes later, nothing, nothing. So they're about to call the police, and one of the counselors says, just let me look one more, I'm going to do one more sivuv, I'm going to do one more time. Comes back a minute later, she found the baby. Found the baby. It's unbelievable. So, good news for the Jews. They can go back to the mains. This, this is the real, that's the real story, of course. They can go back. They can eat again. She is crying tears of joy. Calm down. Everyone's kind of going back to their life. But something's nagging at her. She goes to this counselor. She says, first of all, I want to thank you. I owe you everything. But let me ask you one question. How come after everyone else had given up, why did you, you're the only one who said, let me go try it, I'm going to go look again. So she told the mother, because I'm Leibie Kletzky's sister. 
And if you remember that horrible story, a boy was walking home from school from Brooklyn, never made it home. And we know, unfortunately, the story ended tragically. They found his body a few hours later. But in that interim period, and this was all over the news, people were blown away by this. Hundreds and hundreds of Hasidim just stopped whatever they were doing in Brooklyn and went and were looking and did not stop. She said, I remember what it was like to have a missing family member, and I remember what it meant that other people were looking. Because I had that experience, I couldn't give up. That's this first point. She, I'm not saying the other people were unsympathetic, but no one truly felt Libo Meitzara love the way she did. She could truly identify, she could truly empathize, and therefore she wasn't going to give up. She did even a little bit more than she herself probably would have done if she hadn't had that experience. So that's an extreme story, but I think even on a more prosaic level, I think it's basically true. And I think we all know that. If we can feel the pain and not just be uh, you know, generically sympathetic, get sympathetic and seeing and knowing and writing a check or volunteering your time, it's all great. But we'll all do much more than we would have done otherwise if we can truly connect and feel the pain. That's point number one. Point number two, I think, is very much uh, relates to something we spoke about last week. In fact, there's a little bit of the same sources as we saw from last week. And that is the fact that part of why we do all these things in these midos and chesed is not just for the other person, but also for what it does for us. And here, I just want to repeat something that I mentioned uh, last week, in case either A, people weren't here, or B, it's always good to repeat it anyway. Um, and that is uh, the fact that we have a commandment known as veheve domelo, or mahu afata. We are supposed to imitate HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And in fact, there's two different Gemaras that make this point, source number 11 and source number 12. And source number 11, however, the Gemara says, based on the Pasuk of Zekeli Vanvehu from Az Yashir, what does the word Vanvehu mean? It's a very peculiar word. So in according to this opinion in the Gemara, it's a conjunction. It means, Heve Domelo. Be similar to God, as they say in Latin, imitatio Dei, imitate the characteristics of God. Mahu Chanun Verachum, Afata Heye Chanun Verachum. Just like He is compassionate and kind and merciful, so too you should be compassionate and merciful. That is the first version of the Gemara. However, in source number 12, a similar idea is mentioned, a uh, different pasuk, and, but basically the same idea. You should go and imitate God. But here the formulation is not heavy domelo, be like him and describe the midos, the attributes of God, but rather second line, source number 12, follow in the way that God acts, as we see in the continuation of the Gemara, the examples that are given to flesh out the point are not just be compassionate in some abstract sense, be uh, kind or merciful in some theoretical sense. But specifically, here the Gemara gives actual action items. Malbi sharumim, you know, clothe the naked, bikur cholim, nichum avelim, kover mesim, all the things, and each time there's proof text that say that we know that God did this, that, and the other. So just like Hashem does these actions of compassion and mercy, so too you should do these actions. And again, as I mentioned last week, this is just a chazara, um, you know, I, my whole life was familiar with the two Gemaras, it didn't really make much of it. It really seems to be just saying the same thing. 
you see how God has all these wonderful midos, we should try to emulate and imitate God's midos. However, and I think an incredibly powerful and a compelling uh, insight, I quoted to you last week and I give it to you here again from Rav Asher Weiss, in source number 13, uh, going over to the second page, he makes the point, that, no, the Gemara is saying two different things, nuanced, very close, but different in an important way. As he puts it in Hebrew, one Gemara is talking about nitztavinu lioskein. It has to do with our personality. We have to be like Hashem. But there's a second additional point, which is the second Gemara. Ach gam la'asot right? There's a difference between being and doing. Liot and la'asot. And again, the amazing thing is, and Rav Asher Weiss uh, makes this point, that you know, people are funny, because we're people, so we're all idiosyncratic, we all have our mishagasin. There are some people who are liot. They truly, you know, they feel, but then they don't do. And there are other people who kind of do, but they don't really feel at all. They're both okay, but they're both insufficient. What a Jew is really supposed to be is liot and la'asot. So I already mentioned, and I think it's true, that typically it's fair to say the more a person truly feels it, the more a person is liot, the more likely and on a higher level you will la'asot. Although again, it's not always the case. But here I think the second point, which I think is so important and so powerful, is that in addition and separate from the lasot, that's not enough just to do. It's also about liot. Empathy is part of our personal development as ethical human beings. You're not a fully functioning, certainly not a, on a higher level, on the highest level of what a, a Jew is supposed to be, unless you're also liot. A lot of people, again, the easiest thing, ironically, the easiest thing is to write the check. And, you know, in Israel, you don't even have to write a check. Just have our bankit or bit or something. I mean, you're, you know, three swipes on your phone and you can could, you could make the donation. And again, I'm not minimizing that, especially someone who's affiliated with organizations that need donations. But the truth of the matter is, it's not just the money or even to, do, to, to volunteer for a little bit. It's possible to do those kind of things and be totally unmoved and unchanged. The, the benefit of no sewol chaveru is that it's more than that. It's that it's also about changing who we are, not just the lasot, but the liyot. Point number three. This is the next group of sources, starting with source number 14. I think this is very, very important, uh, and I think it's often overlooked. And I want to make this point uh, by way of a very interesting, two interesting Gemaras. The first in source number 14, the Gemara is describing uh, what are the characteristics one needs to be a leader. And in fact, it borrows from a Pasuk that we know from Sefer Bamidbar that describes Moshe Rabbeinu. Kasher yisah omein es hayonek. Now what's an omein? An omein or omenet is a wet nurse. Just like the wet nurse, the nanny, carries the baby, so to you as a leader need to carry the people. On its face, a beautiful Pasuk, powerful emotional image. However, source number five is an amazing source. The Margolio Sayam is a sefer written on Masechet Sanhedrin, written by actually a librarian. Ruben Margolius is a tremendous scholar, prolific author, uh, who was not, was just known as the librarian, but it turns out he, he didn't have some big rabbinic position, scholarly position, he wasn't Rosh Hashiva, even though he knew more than most Rosh Hashivas, he was a librarian. And I only emphasize that because in the introduction to the sefer, he writes about that. You, you, you see he was aware, it was a little bit of an isayon for him. But be that as it may, in source number 15, he says something again, he admits right away it's drush, this is homiletical, but it's powerful drush, it's good drush. He says, how come the Gemara uses the male form? In Omein, 
I translate it as a wet nurse, but it means a male nurse. An omenet would be a female nurse. So you could say that the original apostle was talking about Moshe. Okay, but Hashem is telling Moshe what to be like. So he could have said, you need to be like the loving nanny, you need to be like the omenet. You need to be like the wet nurse. But he uses the term omen. So says the Margot Yom something so beautiful. He says, you know why it specifically used the male term? Think about it for a moment. The baby is crying. You try putting him down, you know, moving him up and down, patting his back, giving him the pacifier. Nothing's helping. You know why? Because the baby's hungry. The baby wants to nurse. The omain, the male nurse, can't do it. So what does he do? Oh, says the Pasuk, Kasher Yisa Omein Esayonek. Even when the nurse, the male nurse, can't feed the child, doesn't have milk to nurse, he doesn't just say, okay, there's nothing I can do, leave the baby crying in the crib. He still holds the baby, caresses the baby, swaddles the baby, at least does whatever he can, even though he doesn't have the answer. Says the Margolis Yam, that's what the Gemara is teaching us. Sometimes we don't have the answer. Sometimes we don't have the resource. The person knocks on your door and nebuch, let's assume that at least most of the time it's actually a true story. My wife, my spouse, my child is having this surgery and it can only be in uh, Los Angeles and the doctors are telling me I need to raise this enormous amount of money. You're not going to mind, I don't have that amount of money. I can give you 100 shekel, I can give you 50 shekel. So you can tell yourself, what is it going to do? Or something's not about money. You're not a doctor, you you can't invent a a cure for cancer, you can't invent a cure for whatever the disease is. So what am I supposed to do? You might think, listen, if I could help, I would help. I would drop my job. I, I would do everything to help. But what can I do? I can't help. It's not the kind of problem that I have a solution for. And just move on with my life. So says the Gemara, no, you're not just an omenet. An omenet can help. She has the milk. That's important. But you have to be an omen. Even when you don't have the milk, when you don't have the thing that the person needs, that doesn't mean you're irrelevant you can still do your part. Because even if you can't give the person what they need right now, just the fact that you convey your compassion and your concern means everything. It's not nothing. It's not nothing. The Omain, even though he can't nurse, can also do something. Take a look in source number 16. The Gemara is an amazing Gemara. If you've never heard of this uh, drush, uh, it'll blow your mind. It's an amazing Gemara. The Gemara says that when Paro had his plan of domination over the Jewish people, he had three advisors, people who we're familiar with from other parts of Tanakh, Bilam, Eov, and Yisro. And he shared his plan, he asked them what they thought, and the three of them had different reactions. Bilam was very excited. Oh yes, you, you thought you were going to persecute the Jews this way, I heard that if you use a gas and you put them in Zyklon B, it could be more efficient and don't just mow them down in a forest. He was given great aces. He was part of the final solution, Bilam. And as a result, of course, Bilam gets punished with death. Eov, says the Madrish, says the Gemara, didn't say a word. And for not saying a word, he's punished with terrible suffering. Job, the great sufferer. Yisro ran away, he couldn't be part of it, and he gets rewarded that his son-in-law is Moshe, his daughter becomes part of the Jewish people, his great-grandchildren are the leaders of the Jewish people. So, in source number 17 and 18, I couldn't resist, I gave you both, but they basically say the same thing. 17 is Rabbi Chaim Shemulevitz, number 18 may be a more surprising source, because he's not usually a darshan, the briskarov, Rav Velvel, 
both make the same point because they're both bothered by the same question. I understand why Yisra was rewarded. I understand why Bilam is punished. But why does Eov suffer so much? What did Eov do? He couldn't help. If he would say, uh, Mr. Paro, I think you should stop. Paro would have listened. He didn't contribute. He didn't participate. And in many ways, he suffers more than Bilam. Bilam just gets killed. Eov has to suffer terribly. What did Eov do so wrong? And they both make the same point. We'll read it just, uh, we'll skip 18, but we'll read it a little bit in source number 17 from Chaim Shmulevitz. It says, Chaim Shmulevitz, Eov said to himself, what am I going to do? I can't do anything. I'll be quiet. I'm not going to help. But I'll keep my head down. Says Rukhaim Shalev in source number 17, he got all this terrible punishment to teach him about his mistake. Kihine, he said. Hamit Yasser B'Yisurim, says Rukhaim Shalev, this is a fact. Physical and metaphysical fact of life. Anyone who suffers B'Yisurim must automatically, reflexively, Pavlovian, Zoek V'Zoek, he cries out, he's in pain. When you're getting a shot, when they're doing surgery on you, you're, the doctor's cutting it, and you're crying. Does the cry help? Does it make the pain go away? It doesn't help. There's no rational benefit. Nevertheless, why do you cry? Because that's what it means, because you're a human being. It's just part of the way we were created as human beings. If you're in pain, you cry out. In Yiddish, the saying is, when you're in pain, you call out. So says Rechaim Shulevitz, the fact that Eov didn't cry out, the fact that Eov was able to be shotake, he was able to be quiet, Al-Karcha must be, Shein Koevlo. He heard what Paro was going to do to the Jews, and it didn't hurt him. He saw himself as separate. What's it got to do with me? The Chinese are, are basically committing a holocaust against the Uyghurs. What's it got to do with me? Doesn't matter. So if Eov wants to be part of the Jewish people, you want to be part of the Jewish people? You're a Jew? It doesn't hurt you at all? Right? Well, you know what? I'll give you some of your personal pain. You'll feel that. Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. We can't always help. But like the Omein, we have to feel the pain. If we don't feel the pain, it means that we're not, we're not part of the Jewish people. And now it goes back to what I mentioned I was going to get to at the beginning of the Shir, which is, this is my own observation. I don't think it's so profound, but I do think it's correct. The term, no say ba'ol im chavero. What does that mean? Carry the burden with my friend. Imagine your friend calls you up, uh, and you know, we're moving, I just moved into a new apartment, and imagine, remember from when our younger years, you know, we didn't have two shekels to rub together, so your friends were helping each other move, so we'd have to pay for the mover. So you call up your roommates from college or whatever to help you, and you're schlepping up the, the sofa up the third floor uh, into the apartments, or, you know, right? Some big thing, you help, help. The weight of the object is the same 200, 300, 400 pounds, whatever it is, whether one person's carrying, two people are carrying, or three people are carrying. No say ba'olam chaveiro. Nevertheless, if three people are carrying it, the weight didn't get any less. But now it's being shared by multiple people. The weight's the same. The problem is the same. But it's now dispersed among multiple people, and that original person who needed our help is not carrying it alone. 
when we carry it with other people, it's just not as heavy for us. Right? That's obviously true. That's beyond obvious if we're talking about you know, carrying a piano up through a flight of stairs or something like that. My, uh, my son-in-law and daughter, uh, when they were getting married, so they're moving into a little, you know, little coal apartment, so they're looking for you know, as many cheap second-hand uh, things as they could get. And before the wedding, I went with my uh, son-in-law, and so they found somebody was selling, uh, someone was moving out of an apartment, I think in Petah Tikva, I can't remember where she was moving from. Anyway, some single girl, anyway, she was moving, and she, like for 100 shekel, we got a refrigerator. Okay, my makatenista had four hours to clean the refrigerator. That's how dirty they gave it to us. Okay, uh, but we got a refrigerator. And my son-in-law and I, I think I was only on the second floor, we had to carry it down a flight of steps into, into the minivan, right? So whatever, how much that refrigerator cost, uh, weighed, excuse me, it uh, didn't cost much at all, but it did weigh a lot, right? The weight was whatever the weight was. And trust me, the two of us barely got it done, but luckily he was a soldier, so... Let's just say that uh, I was not embarrassed that he was holding more than 50% of the weight. Uh, I'm not in that shape. Uh, I wasn't in, at his age, and I'm certainly not now. Um, but the fact that the two of us carried it together, so obviously we each had to carry less weight. I think that's exactly what Chazal have in, mean, have in mind when they say, empathy is no say ba'ol im chavero. That is to say, you have an issue. It's not a refrigerator that needs to be carried up a flight of steps or down a flight of steps. It's nebuch. You have a challenge with one of your kids. Nebuch, one of your parents may be sick. Nebuch, right now your husband's out of work. You're, you're having difficulty. Whatever it is that's in pain. You have a friend, you have a neighbor, you have a, a parent, you have a spouse, you have a sibling, or hopefully your spouse, someone who's going to empathize with your pain. What does that mean to empathize? So it could be that they could really help. He or she could really help. They have an idea, they could do something. But a lot of times, you can't. So... To empathize means to be no say but all. It's true, I can't make it go away. I'm not a doctor, I can't make the diagnosis, go away. I don't have a million dollars to give you, I can't make your parnas all of a sudden better. I'm not a child psychologist, I can't all of a sudden make your child do better. I'm not a marriage therapist, I can't make your marriage go better right away. I may not be able to help. The problem, the refrigerator still weighs 400 pounds. I can't change that. But just like if two or three people are carrying the refrigerator, the weight gets shared I think we all know, because we've all been in the experience of needing someone else's empathy. When we're carrying it all by ourselves, it's overwhelming. When there's someone else who gets it, and we can look in their eyes and see, he or she is feeling that pain as well. It didn't go away. It's still the same refrigerator. But I'm not carrying it alone anymore. And the weight is not as heavy. That's the third point. Sometimes we can help, but sometimes we can't. But even when we can't, we really are if we're truly carrying the weight with them. So we saw three reasons why I think it's so important. Number one is, Lamaisa, a lot of times we can help. But how much we're going to help is often going to be triggered by how much we identify emotionally. We'll do more. right? Number two is, it's about who we become. We become better people if we empathize. And number three is, even when we can't do, if we feel we really are doing because we can lessen the load like the refrigerator metaphor I gave you, or as the vort we saw of the male nurse, the yonek, the omen, excuse me. He can't nurse, but he can still hold and caress the baby. I want to conclude, if you'll give me just a few more minutes, I want to conclude with an a incredible uh, uh, vort, of a great idea, a very powerful idea, and a story to wrap it up. So there's a riddle. This is going to sum up everything, I think. And it also goes back to the title of the year, the subtitle, which is Learning About Ourselves. So there's a riddle in Perkei Im Im'ein anili mili, 
Ukishani laatzmi ma'ani. Right? Why do I say it's a riddle? What does it mean? If I'm not for myself, who am I? But if I am for myself, money, what kind of person am I? So, some fact, it's a tongue twister. It's also a riddle, because it doesn't make any sense. It seems to contradict itself. The first phrase seems to say, I should look out for number one. If I'm not always looking out for myself, then who will? What kind of person am I? I don't care about myself. On the other hand, literally the next phrase, when I care about myself, what kind of person am I? Narcissistic, selfish. So which one is it? Is it good or bad? So source number 20, an amazing, amazing presentation. In the Sefer called Sha'are Yoshar. Sha'are Yoshar is actually a Talmudic, Halachic, incredibly complex, esoteric book of uh, Talmudic analysis by somebody named Shimon Shkup. who was one of the great 19th century European Rosh Hashivas, lived into the 20th century, actually spent a year in America where he actually worked at YU. So to this day, if you go to the Svarim sale at YU and they have the table of books that they're selling from the YU faculty, they include his Svarim. That's a little bit of a cheap move. Uh, but he was there for a year. He was there. Like a hundred years ago, he was there for one year before he went back to Europe. Um, famous Rosh Hashiva of Grodna in Lithuania. Anyway, very, very famous Rosh Hashiva. Talmudim of Rebchaim Brisker. Anyway, very, one, of the, one of the greats of Eastern European first half of the 20th century. So he, in source number 20, in the introduction, he asked this question. And he doesn't just ask the question on the Mishnah. He points out that we have Psukkim, we have Amari Chazal that seem to say that self-love, caring about yourself, is a valued thing. On the other hand, we have many other sources, more obvious even, that talk about how it's more important to love other people. And as he points out in the opening of source number 20, it would seem to be a contradiction. It seems like it's competitive. If I care about myself, I can't care about you. If I care about you, I can't care about myself. I only have so much time, I only have so much money, I have so much mental bandwidth, I only have so much emotional bandwidth. Who am I worrying about? Am I worrying about myself, self-care, self-love, or am I worrying about other people? Right? Again, this is true about us, Klape, the neighborhood, the community, our kids. Right? Who am I? Everything's pulling. Which one is it? So he says, the key to realize, but he says on the other hand, if the Torah and Chazal are obligating us in both, it can't be a contradiction. So what's the solution to all of it? He says clearly, here's the key point, it all depends on how you defend, define ani. And he quotes you at least four or five levels. We don't have time to read it all inside, but I'm going to paraphrase it for you. He says, yes, it's true. You have to love yourself and prioritize yourself. But how do you define yourself? He says, the lowest level, is the person who just sees him or herself as their physical body. So all they care about are their physical needs. Very, very limited. Then you have a level that's a little bit higher. You realize I'm not just a body, I'm also on a shama. So you don't just care about your physical needs, you also care about your spiritual needs. But still very low level, all I care about at the end of the day is me. I just, I'm sophisticated enough to know that me is not just this, but it's something I can't see on the inside. But then he says level three, which hopefully is very, very common, is someone who's When you say you love your children, you love your spouse, right? you could do that as I love the other, a lot of others in the world. But these six, seven, eight people I love even more than others. But I don't think that's, I hope, I hope, that's not the really way most of us feel. Right? When I think of my spouse or my children, I don't see them as an other who I love. That is me. Right? Whether that happened, I know, you know, for some people maybe that happened on the first date, I don't know. <laughs> and for some people maybe it happened in Shana Rishona. Or sometimes it has to happen over time. But, and especially with children, it's you know, even more instantaneous, especially for mothers. Right? 
a normal loving mother does not see her children as somehow separate. It is an extension, an expansion of her. What I, whatever I do, I'm not, I'm not trying to hold myself up as, as a role model, I'm just using myself as an example. Whatever I do, whatever sacrifices I make, whatever extra hard I'm willing to work, whatever I'm willing to do for my children, I don't see it as for some others. You know, I could have been doing it for someone else's children, but I haven't been doing it for my children. No, it's part of who I am. I remember when we, my daughter was born, and then about a year and a half, whatever later, we were expecting a second child. And I remember speaking to I have a, one of my uncles, my father's younger brother I'm particularly close with. I remember confiding in him. I said, I don't understand what's going to be. I said, I love this girl, my daughter Eliana. I said, with every fiber of me, there's no room left in my heart to love another child. What am I going to do? Am I supposed to love her less to make room for whoever's coming? So he said to me something so obvious, but something so profound. I've never forgotten it 22 years later almost. He said, Dov, you'll see. You don't have to love any less. Your heart's just going to grow twice as big. Now you can have room to love all, with all of your heart, a second child, and a third, and however many you get blessed with. V'kachava. Not just to me, to all of us. That's what it means. So I don't view my children, right? <laughs> I want to go to the pizza shop. You know, can I have uh, you know, uh, two pies? I don't think you really need uh, that. No, not me. I need it for, when I say I need, I don't mean I. I mean I need our family. But that's I. Says Rosh Hashanah, that's the big ani. I don't just think of myself. I think of the family. But says, that's also only one, that's another madrega. But what's even higher than that? What are we really all striving for? That the same way I see my family, my wife, my, son, my husband, my children as part of my ani, I see the whole Jewish people as part of my ani. That's what the means. Not that I love them because they're other. I love them because I now have an expanded ani. My ani includes all of these people. I'm not saying that's easy, but that's what we're striving for. She says, now you understand the riddle. Am ain anili? Mili. If I don't care about myself, yeah, what kind of person? Of course you're supposed to care about yourself. But if my definition of who I am is only me, then what kind of person am I? Then I'm the lowest level. So yes, it's that, that, that's, the, that's the resolution. It's not a contradiction. If I see myself as being part of everybody, then I can say, yes, I love myself because that doesn't make me a selfish, narcissistic person. Myself and my needs encompass a greater amount of people. Again, just like we can relate to this when it comes to our spouse and our children, certainly we at least know what we're shooting for and aiming for as we hopefully try to get that way. And again, there are people. Now, we, maybe we appropriately admire them and put them up on a pedestal because maybe it's not as common as it should be. But there are people, we've met people, we've heard about people, we've read about people, we've known people who truly feel this way about other Jews. Like they cannot go to sleep unless this problem is solved. They will not rest unless they can help save yet another Jew, help this family, help this, whatever the situation is. So why is that? I think this is the answer. Because their sense, all human beings were hardwired biologically, evolution, however you want to call it, to be, care about number one. That's the way we were made. Instead of Shemeshkap, it's also Psukim and Gemaras that tell us that. It's just that some people's eye is a big eye. The goal of life is to increase your ani. Not to not care about yourself, but to expand the ani.
into a big ani. So I'm just going to end with one uh, amazing story that I think really captures uh, this point. Uh, there was a great Rosh Hashiva who only died not that long ago. I actually met him when I was still living in Baltimore. A group of Rabbanim actually went to New York to consult with some Rabbanim, and he was the oldest one that we met. It was very shortly before he passed away. His name was Zelig Epstein. He was a great Rosh Hashiva already in Europe, a big genius. Then he came, he was in Tarvadas for many, many years. And then with his son and somebody else, they actually started their own yeshiva called Shara Torah uh, in Queens, which is where it is to this very day, a very prestigious uh, yeshiva. So years ago, when he was still in Tarvadas in Brooklyn, he was very close with a couple, I think, I can't remember, uh, I don't know if they lived in his building, somehow he knew this couple, Holocaust survivors. And unfortunately, like many, uh, they had a real hard time of, you know, starting their life anew. The wife had it hard, but she managed. The husband really was never 100%. They had one child, uh, but the husband was never really 100%. And unfortunately, at some point, the husband committed suicide. So this Almana had a very hard life, shaking off of the Holocaust, only had one child, her husband committed suicide, it's terrible. And then years later, her son gets sick. And an of Yom Kippur, her son died. And the funeral was not going to be until after Yom Kippur. And Rizalik was really, really, you know, he was there for them, he was talking to her, he was going to help at the funeral, but she is, he, you know, how, you can't, we can easily imagine, maybe we can't even, the level of pain that the suffering this woman is going through. Her only child now has died, her husband committed suicide, Holocaust survivor. It's Yom Kippur night. Rizalik Epstein is on his way to the base medrash in Torvadas to take a seat up by the Aram Kodesh with the other Rebbeim, and he just can't stop thinking about this woman. He says to himself, you know, if I wait till Matzi Yom Kippur to call, maybe she's going to do what her husband did. I'm not sure she can make it. A Yom Kippur all by herself, a day after her, husband, her son died, the day before his funeral. So she decide, he decides, he's right in the yeshiva, he says, you know what, I think instead of going to yeshiva for Yom Kippur, I'm going to walk to her house. So he starts walking and he realizes he's about an hour away by foot. Maybe that's going to be too long. God forbid, what could happen? So he turns back again. By the time he gets to Tarvadas Beis Medrash, already in Mariv. There's an empty seat in the front. He never showed up. No one knew what's going on. Where's Rabzelik? He goes all the way up to the front to ask his mentor, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. He says, I think I should take a bus. On Yom Kippur in the middle of Brooklyn. Kol Nidre night. In his talis, in his kittel. I think, I, what? So Rav Yaakov said, 100%. And Rav Yaakov puts his hand into his shtender and takes out the nickel or whatever it was that it took the bus in those days to give Rabzelik the money. So driving through Brooklyn on a, Yom, on a Yom Kippur night, Epstein in a bus, he goes and he spends Yom Kippur not in the base medrash, but alone with this woman in her apartment until he can eventually help her uh, with the burial tomorrow. And he stays with he and his wife, you know, mentor and help this woman for the rest of her life. How did Roselli get? How do you how do you be such a person who's even thinking about it? With all the other things I can only imagine he had on his mind, who's willing as Rashiva to give up Yom Kippur and Yeshiva. To be alone with a widow who can only imagine the conversation, what that was like in that apartment for those 24 hours. And you know what the answer is? He gives her Shemesh Kup's grandson. His wife was a granddaughter. <coughs> he had the big ani. If you have a big ani, if that was your mother, if that was your aunt, if that was your sister, then you would do it. If you have an expanded ani, anything is possible. And that, I think, is the power of empathy. Okay, that's it.